If you have your Bibles, uh, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28? And I'm going to read from verse 16 through to 20. This is what the word of the Lord says. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. Always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Then, and throughout history and even today, those charged with the work of making disciples of Jesus Christ has not always been the greatest disciples themselves. This month of remembering our indigenous brothers and sisters and perhaps for some of us being exposed to a reality that we would rather not think about reminds us that the church has not always done the work of discipleship in the ways of Jesus. We are a community of faith and grace, but we're also a community of truth. One that shouldn't just on special months pause to lament what truth is, but in every part of our life and in every season of our life, allow truth to both convict, reveal, and lead. And so this morning we lament. We lament the ways in which perhaps those who've gone before us have not always lived up to that which God has called them to be and do. We lament how perhaps in our own lives we don't always do the work of discipleship well. We sit here as a people who allows the word of God to shape how we think about ourselves and we allow the conviction that only the spirit of God can bring when truth is proclaimed in his name to each one of us and collectively as the church we join other churches today and say, God, forgive us for the ways in which we have not been who you've called us to be. We know that there is mercy for such honesty. We know that there is mercy and grace for such repentance. And so we do not repent to a God who will not receive such repentance with grace and forgiveness, but we receive in grace such forgiveness in a way that says, God, help us to be. Help us to be the people you want us to be. 
Help us to learn from our past so that we would walk in your ways pleasing to you. Help us to be the kinds of disciples that makes disciples according to your word and in your ways. Yet this very Jesus is the one who, contrary to the expectation of his very own disciples who have scattered, betrayed, and left him in his moment of destitute, turns to them and commissions them. This very Jesus comes to the church today as he did to the disciples and stands before us, perhaps not on Mount Galilee, but by his word, stands before disciples who may feel the same way, that we're, we're not quite sure you should entrust us with the work. As we look back and as we think about the church today, perhaps some of us have the same questions. Can you accomplish what you think we can accomplish through us? Can you do, should you entrust the work of making disciples of all nations to the church today? God, if we've got to be honest with you, we just wonder whether that's really going to happen in the way that you have intended it when you called us and called those first disciples. The disciples meet Jesus in Galilee on top of the mountain because the first missionaries in the Gospels, which are women, go to the tomb and find that Jesus is no longer dead. They run with the message of hope. I, I think I could probably preach on, on, on a day that we think about the unique faith of woman, about how that the woman in the text believe what they see and the men in the text struggle. They run with this excited message that Jesus, the resurrected one, wants to meet with these very disciples atop a mountain. And when they arrive at the mountain and they see Jesus, the word of God says this, they worship and hesitate. This word hesitate is rendered in the Bible. Most of your Bibles is doubt. They worship and they doubt. In all likelihood, they did what the woman did who bowed before Jesus. They too throw themselves before him. But here, Matthew will let us know that they are, they are worshiping, but there's an element of uncertainty in their worship. Now, if you read different scholars, they'll give you different perspectives, but no one worth reading the scripture will ever say, we know for sure exactly why they doubt. But maybe we can relate Maybe some of us can relate what it means to want to worship, but we have that little bit of concern. <laughs> we worship the God who commissions us, but we just wonder whether in fact he's making a good choice. Some of the potential reasons they doubt, some scholars say, is that the resurrection was a supernatural phenomenon. No one expects to see someone rise after seeing such brutality on a Roman cross. In fact, the other Gospels will tell us that when Jesus appears to them, they ask to put their fingers in his wounds so as to verify that this is legitimately the same body that they just saw horrendously crucified. Some say perhaps the disciples doubt because they are monotheists and they're not quite associating Jesus as the true God yet, and so they doubt whether they should be worshiping him. I'm not sure I buy that, but hey, worth sharing. Or perhaps 
They doubt because they wonder how Jesus would receive them after they have not been the kinds of followers that they should have been. The only other place in Scripture where 11 people bow down and worship is in Genesis chapter 37. Now just stay with me. I hope I can do this justice. In Genesis chapter 37, we read the story of Joseph, the 12th son of Israel. He is betrayed by his brothers. He's kind of, initially, they plot to kill him. He is taken away, and he is made a servant in Egypt. Through a, a story that should make it into a movie, he finds himself eventually as the second in command of all of Egypt. He's a dreamer, by the way, and his dreams are what gets him into trouble. But he dreams again, and he has this dream. Just listen to this. He dreams that the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars will fall down and worship him. And the story goes like this, that the dream is fulfilled when Joseph's 11 brothers shows up in Egypt and who they thought was dead now had power, they are afraid because they wonder if this brother who we have sold into slavery and intentionally plotted to kill will exact revenge on us. And Joseph responds with these words, what was intended for evil What was intended for evil, God will use for good. To bring salvation to many. In fact, I, I'm more convinced that the story of Joseph paints for us probably a more adequate picture of the disposition of the disciples who stand before Jesus expecting rejection and receiving a mission. <laughs> I think that the story of Joseph teaches us that sometimes, you know, when we stand before God and he believes in us, we are the ones that have to overcome this disbelief in ourselves. And let me just be very transparent with you. I, I, I think that as I read the text and as I try to envision us entering this text, as Jesus comes before us, the resurrected one, the one who has all authority, the one who Daniel 7 describes as the Son of Man, the one with healing in his winds, the one who overcomes Satan's sin and death and rises, stands before us and he says... I now send you. It is an overwhelming prospect when we think about who we are and where we've been. And yet, he chooses us for this mission. He calls a bunch of worshiping doubters to change the world. He calls people who don't always get it right to become his righteousness. 
He invites us into something so great that if we are ever to think it's based upon our own meritability, skill, or how faithful we've been, is disregarded right in this text because Jesus calls those who just couldn't do it in their own strength and by themselves. And he entrusts them with this great mission. Are you still with me? I think that if the mission was entirely up to them, they would fail, and so will we. And so it's important that we just kind of, as I move towards my only point, (laughs) for fear of being pointless. That Jesus sends and calls, and he has the authority to do so. It is in the authority of Christ that the church does its work. It is in the name of the triune God that we learn to baptize. I want you to think about this. Have you ever thought about this? That Jesus says to the disciples, I want you to make disciples. The imperative is actually on making disciples, not on go. If we render it in the original languages, as you go. That's kind of how we read that, as you go. Perhaps a different way of saying it is, as you go, wherever you go, make disciples. That's a little bit more challenging, right? We can't just say it's the missionary. As you go, make disciples. But here's how I want to kind of conclude my thoughts. Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Have you ever asked yourself, why do we not just baptize in the name of the Father? Why don't we just baptize, Jesus could have said this, in my name. It's legitimate. I've just overcome Satan, sin, and death. Why are we told to baptize in the Holy Spirit? Why are we told that when we are to fulfill the mission that God has placed before us the way he does want us to fulfill it, that we ought to baptize people not only in one, but in the three names that represents the one God. Do you know that right after the resurrection and Jesus' ascension, when the early church was birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit, that there were some who wanted to baptize the Gentile believers into Jewish belief and culture before they would become Christian. There were some who said, we have to baptize you into a cultural understanding first, and, and we have to make you ethnically like us in order for you to be accepted to Christ. Do you know what Jesus is saying when he says, I command you to baptize in the name of the one God who is three in one? He's saying, I'm commanding you to say to people that they are ultimately defined by me and who I am and not anything else. Don't you dare baptize them into anything other than who the God is that I represent here in this world. That if the church is going to repent from its past and embrace what God is calling it to, it becomes a church that understands we are not inviting people into a certain perspective that is pleasing to us. We are inviting people to find their identity in the God of Jesus Christ. 
But what does it mean? To baptize in the name of the Father is to live like God has destined all people to become his children. Jesus, when he was baptized, would hear the the word, would hear the affirmation from the Father. This is the Son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Those who become baptized in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, uh, they, they get to stand before God in the person of Christ and hear God say the same words, Welcome, my beloved child. I am your father. Irrespective of who you are, where you come from, this is what it means to be baptized, that absolutely every person created in this world, God invites as a child to come and receive their sonship, their daughtership, their adoption. To be baptized in the name of the Father is to recognize that the family is a lot larger than we have made it. Come on, church. We sing he's a good, good father, but man, do we, do we underestimate how gracious and how expansive is the love of God as demonstrated through Christ. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, our father. He's saying that it's not just my father, it is all of our father. There is a sense in which when we baptize and live true to our baptismal identity, we know that we belong to him, but we also know this, that every person created by God in this world is destined according to his purpose and plan to find their belonging in him. That he so desires to be such a father to all. Not only are we to baptize in the name of the Father, we are to baptize in the name of the Son. It is Jesus who said, I have come not to be served, but to serve. To be baptized in the name of the Father is to know that we belong, that all belong, that all are welcome to come and receive their adoption papers through Christ. But it is also, it is also to, to take a posture in life that sometimes the church hasn't taken. You know what it says in John's gospel? I'm jumping from Matthew to John. It's okay, right? I'm okay, Mel. now wanting to show them the full extent of his love. He put on an apron, that of a servant. And he began to wash their feet. The response of Peter is the response that explains why the church has often struggled with this kind of way of life because the church has grappled with not being the servant but being the master. sometimes lack the humility. The spirit that does not say, give to me because I deserve, but the spirit that says to me, live out the love that you've received from the Father and learn to be those kinds of servants in this world. 
Whenever the expectation in my life is, is that I would be served, I'm always going to be disappointed. I find that all the time. Whenever I assume a posture of privilege and power as a Christian, we, I'm walking in, in very, very shaky territory. But when I begin to look around me and say, where's the apron? Where's the need? Where do I need to bow down? Where do I need to wash feet? Where do I need to respond where everybody else is not looking? Where, where in my life is God saying to me, I need you not to sit there waiting on somebody else, but I need you to step in and do what I've called you to do? In one of the most beautiful hymns, the most powerful hymns in Philippians 2, it says that he, though he was in the image of God, created to be God, he emptied himself. He, he gave himself up in some ways to become like us, to show us what it means to love, to show us what it means to serve, to show us what it means to be disciples, to be the church. What would those around you say of you and me? They're not here to be serving us. They want to be served. I hope not. Uh, when people look at our lives as a church, I wonder if, if what they would say about us as a community of faith is they, they want things from us. They're not here to make life better. I hope not. What would it look like in your home, in my home, for us to, to put on the apron? You know, I... I've often, uh, when, when I read the news and, 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 you know, follow social media and stuff like that, I get, I get discouraged. Do you get discouraged sometimes? There's only so much your brain can take in, right? Especially bad stuff. And you just kind of go, I got I to dial out. And here's my, here's my personality is I want everything to be made right. And when I, can, when, when I come to, you know, when I, when I come to, to terms of the fact that this there's just so much that is still wrong. It, 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 it creates this despondency in me. It, it can lead me to a place of, that I don't think is helpful to live in. And some of us have got there over this last year. Do you know what the cure is to hopelessness? To being overwhelmed? It is Jesus and his way of serving. If you're sitting here and you're saying, you know, Stu, I, I, you know, it's okay, you're talking about this Trinitarian stuff and, and you're being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son, and I, I just want to say this to you, the cure to optimism, the cure to, to despair in our world today is not to continue to watch the media and what it tells us, but it is to, to live out of this baptismal identity as the children of God and to find our place serving the community, sometimes in the church, sometimes outside the church, finding a way to engage in the way of Jesus does more for our faith and our hope than anything else. Such service is not always easy. In the case of Jesus, it would lead him all the way to the cross. But thanks be to God for the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that we are baptized in, who by his power raised Jesus from the dead. I say this often enough in my mind, this makes an awful lot of sense. 
But those who baptize in the name of the Son, they learn to serve. Those who baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit rely not just on their own strength, but relies on the strength that comes from God himself. And they live their life in the faith that God is at work in them and in this world. When we baptize in the name of the Father, we know that we belong to him. When we baptize in the name of the Son, we know what our vocation is. When we baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit, we know that God will grant us what we need to accomplish that to which he has called us. Therefore, as Christians, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we may be who God has called us to be. And the church says, let it be so. The church says, come Holy Spirit. Help us to live out of our true selves. Help us to live faithfully, courageously. Help us to be the people who don't seek recognition, but seeks to serve and change the world through the ways of love. I have no other notes. I don't know why I'm looking at my page. But I want to invite Mo to come, and she's going to pray for us in a moment. And it's perhaps a prayer that some of you, some of us, will find a little bit uncomfortable to pray. It is a prayer that acknowledges when we have not done what God has called us to do. I hope that you sense and discern in who we want to become as a people of God, that our faith has to find expression in the life we lived and are called to live. And sometimes familiar passages like the Great Commission can easily be exported to be only applicable to those who are missionaries on the one hand, forgetting that it implicates who we are as the people and how we ought to live today. And so I want to make this transition. What if it was our children? What if it was our culture? What if it was our security? our homes. What if the invitation of the Lord is for us not to wallow in regret, although we need to be confessional and humble in repentance, but what if the invitation of the Lord is to face this truth honestly and to learn to live a faith that is true to God today? I'm going to invite you to stand, and Mo is going to lead us in a prayer. After she is done praying, I will offer words of benediction. 
want to invite you that if you have questions and you want to learn more about our history and how we can live out our faith knowing what we know, to speak to me, reach out to our pastors. But more importantly, I want to invite you to let this word, this message, change how we think about people unlike us. Allow the Spirit to lead us. In recognition of National Indigenous Peoples Day, let us remember and reflect as we approach God in prayer sincerely and humbly this morning. I invite you to join me with the bolded text as we read. Creator God, maker of heaven and earth. You know all that we have done. You love the people of every nation you created and call them all daughters and sons. You commanded us to care for the land and every being on it. We confess that we haven't. Creator God, forgive us. Creator God, maker of heaven and earth. Today we remember our past. We remember the land that was stolen from the Sisika, Pikani, Kainai, Sutina, Shiniki, Bearspa, Wesley, Metis, and all indigenous peoples in your name. We remember the traditions, dances, clothing, and language that were stolen in your name. We remember the rights and freedoms that were stolen in your name. We remember the children that were stolen and abused and killed in residential schools in your name. We confess that the church did these things and that this is not your will for your people. Creator God, forgive us. Creator God, maker of heaven and earth, today we recognize the present. We recognize the generational grief and pain felt by our indigenous peoples. We recognize the many issues, including unclean water, lack of health care, poverty, incarcerations, and high suicide rates that burden our indigenous communities. We recognize the systemic racism and discrimination that is deeply rooted in our society. We recognize the silence and the inaction of the church to right our many wrongs. We confess that we are not loving our neighbors as ourselves. Creator God, forgive us. Creator God, maker of heaven and earth, today we hope for the future. We hope for reconciliation, justice, and healing for our indigenous peoples. We hope for mercy and forgiveness for the many crimes that we have committed. 
We hope for real, lasting changes in personal beliefs and actions, businesses, schools and organizations, and policies, regulations, and laws. We pray for the restoration and transformation of indigenous relationships and land. Creator God, may your will be done. Creator God, maker of heaven and earth, may the change we desire to see start with us at Skyview. Help us to be patient, teachable, and receptive as we continue to learn about our real gruesome history. Help us to talk about racism in the history of the church truthfully and humbly and openly. Help us to be generous with our resources and time as we pay back what we owe. And let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream, and may it start with us. Amen. Father, we are perhaps overwhelmed in this season as is. May your spirit enable us to stand up as those who advocate for that which is right, that which is just, and that which is true. Give us courage. Give us compassion. Give us love. In Jesus' name, amen.